powerful worship. Thank you so much, team, for leading us before our Lord, where we want to continue to stay and be as we're turning in our Bibles now to James chapter 5. And as we turn there, what you and I are going to see is a very unique, powerful, strong connection between the verses that we covered last week and the verses that we are covering this week. Because in last week's study, you and I noticed very carefully that in the fourth chapter of James, verse 13 through verse 17, it began with the phrase, come now, didn't it? And that come now was God's way of arresting the attention of the reader. He was dealing with the fact that people were presuming upon time, as if we are owners of time. And now what God has done is to remind us that time is temporal, eternity is forever. But he has a second come now for you and for me, and it's found in chapter 5, verse 1. The connection between last week's and this week's verses is this. God is the owner, and we are the managers. God is the owner of our resources. We are the managers of resources. He is the owner of time, and he is the owner of wealth. We are the managers of time and the managers of wealth. And the danger in this fallen world is to create a substitution where we begin to assume and claim to be owners of both our time and our wealth. And then there's a collision course between time and riches that we're going to see in these verses today. But I want to develop this for us. I'm going to begin reading with last week's study, the verses in chapter 4, verse 13, and we're going to connect the come nows together and see how all this fits before us. We're in that fourth chapter, the 13th verse, James had written, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Strong words. What fascinates me is that for the first time now in James' writings, there is an absence of the phrase, my brothers. He has continuously and repeatedly spoken of 
the people to whom he writes, to whom this is read as my brothers. But now there's a deafening silence. It's as if now he is talking to those who have so secularized the resources of life and assumed ownership over both time and wealth, and he has something to say to the person who substitutes himself or herself for God. And that's what we want to explore this morning as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, what we're praying is that you will take these words that are timeless and apply these words in a manner that's timely. The come now sees our attention. We see that there's a connection that you're making here between the prior and the subsequent verses. It has to do with the fact that you are owner, Lord, over all. Owner, Lord, over time. Owner, Lord, over wealth. And therefore, we are managers, accountable to the owner, managers of our time and managers of wealth in a way that's supposed to honor the owner, the one who on the third day was raised from the dead validating his claim to be Lord of all. So with that in mind, Father, what we're asking is that you will again warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Grabs the attention of the child as well as the parent. It's found in God's Big World, a newspaper that's put out by the people that also produce World Magazine. And what we find is a teacher now who is speaking to the students in the opening days of the classroom experience. What you're going to notice is that she is holding up for her students a $10 bill. Whose picture is on that $10 bill the students have got to grapple with? Because we're being informed that a new picture is soon going to be added. Alexander Hamilton, who had been greatly used during the time period of the Revolutionary War and subsequent to help America develop a sound financial structure and foundation, his picture is going to be replaced. And the question is, who will replace it? But what God's world, God's big world, has done for this student who is developing a Christian worldview is to grapple with the verse that is right there in the center of it all. The verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied by money. Now why is that? Lurking behind that question is the verse upon which God's big world, as well as World Magazine, have established as their worldview verse. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Now, James would expect that his readership and those listening to the exposition would be able to see where he's going with these verses. 
that the two come nows are meant to connect them to this idea that God is the owner. The earth is the Lord's, not ours, and the fullness thereof. He is the owner of resources. He is the source behind the resource, not us. And because of that, we've got to be able to follow the thread of thought that are found in these verses that relate to the way in which you and I approach the daily decision-making we're confronted with. What I want to do with that picture at the forefront is it forces us to start thinking very seriously about this whole matter of God being owner and us being managers is to draw four significant dangers that are found in these verses by the secularist who seeks to assume ownership over the dollars and the sense of life, failing to take into account how seizing ownership of time as well as dollars creates a collision course between now and eternity. Let's check them out. The first danger is lurking there in verses 1 through 3, particularly verse 2 and 3. We're going to phrase it like this, number one. I want you to note with me the danger of hoarding wealth needlessly, stockpiling, amassing, accumulating, needlessly. Why does this happen? It's born in fear. Fear that I've got to stockpile today for the unknowns of tomorrow. And so the stockpiling of wealth pertains to the fears regarding the time of the future. Notice the connection again. Failing to take into account that what God has done is to minister to us at our point in need in the here and now as well as the hereafter. But it also has to do a lot with the whole matter of the denial of reality. We assume control, therefore we stockpile wealth. And now what James does is that he focuses his attention upon the secularist in particular. The my brothers is no longer apparent in these verses. So you have this sense now of the, of the perhaps religious unbeliever, a secularized religious unbeliever. Yes, that's a reality. And that individual now who has attempted to assume the claim of ownership over matters of resources has to address three significant descriptives with regard to the stockpiling tendency that he has or she has in their worldview approach to life. Now, James has said, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's speaking to them in particular that they are not in control of time, nor are they in control of wealth, and now offers them three descriptives of what it is that they're addressing and facing. First, your riches, he says, have rotted. Now, this is an agrarian culture, an agrarian culture, an agricultural setting. And in that agricultural setting, one can almost envision that there's one sack after another, after another, after another for that rainy day to come when the storm clouds break open. But what God is telling us here is that when you begin to understand the whole matter of the management of time as it relates to the management of wealth, and they need to be understood together, 
if we assume ownership of one, we then assume ownership of the other, and the result is we look at that stockpiling, we look at that hoarding, we look at that accumulation, and reality breaks in. Your riches have rotted. Why? Because we have trusted in the stockpiles rather than in the God who is the source, and this is the resource, you see. And slowly, there has been a substitution as the trust has been removed away from the source to the resource. Thinking that I can depend upon them. And so, with the hoarding, rather than depending upon God. Now, James, the half-brother, of course, of Jesus, would be well aware of that story, that parable, a brilliant parable that Jesus would have told. Where in Luke chapter 12, the physician Luke tells us, he told them this parable. Verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now listen to the collision between the hoarding and the issue of time. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. He's assuming ownership of both. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. But then reality breaks in. In particular, God breaks in. And God said to him, fool, this night, that's the time factor, Your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, that is the material factor. Whose will they then be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And yet you and I are informed that Jesus Christ did not lay up treasure for himself. For you know, Paul wrote, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And now the secularist who tries to religionize his approach to life without having put faith and trust in the lordship of Jesus Christ has got to grapple with the tension between God being owner and us being managers versus substituting ourselves so that we are assuming that we are owner and God can become our managers. And he's saying, but take a look at what's rotting here. Time marches, and the riches have rotted. And then a second descriptive. Your garments are moth-eaten. And you say, but I took it to a good dry cleaner, and I thought everything was safeguarded. And now I look at what I've got, and God says reality again breaks in to remind you that you are neither the owner of time nor the owner of wealth. God is the owner of both. We are to be the managers of both. And to begin to take seriously, then, this whole issue that God himself has drawn out for us in Matthew chapter 6. Where in Matthew chapter 6, there was Jesus, and he was speaking in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust 
destroys. And where thieves do not break in and steal, mock this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Bob picks, standing at an airport. He's watching this hug of generations. An elderly Jewish father holding carefully his daughter. They hug and he says, my dear, I love you and I wish you enough. He writes, she turns and says, Daddy, our life together has been more than enough. Your love means everything to me. I wish you enough too, Daddy. They embrace again, kiss and leave. Bob Perks walks over toward the window. Standing there, I could see what was taking place. I tried not to intrude upon the privacy of this elderly man, but he welcomes me by asking, did you ever say goodbye to someone knowing it would be forever? Yes, I say. Saying that brought back memories I had of expressing my love and appreciation for all my father had done for me. Recognizing that time is limited, I took the time to tell him face to face how much he meant to me. So I knew what this man was experiencing. Forgive me for asking, I say, but why is this a forever goodbye? I'm old. She lives much too far away. She heads back to Israel. I have challenges ahead, and the reality is the next trip would be for my funeral. When you were saying goodbye, I heard you say, I wish you enough. May I ask what that means? The utterly Jewish man begins to smile. It's a Jewish custom that has been handed down from my forefathers, from one generation to the next. In fact, my parents used to say to everyone, he paused for a moment, and then looking up, as if, as if trying in some way to remember it in detail, he smiled even more. When we said, I wish you enough, We were wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things from God to sustain them. He continued. And then turning toward me, he shared the following as if recited from memory. I wish you enough to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys in life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you have. I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbyes. And as he slowly walks away, turns, looks toward me, and says, I wish you enough. 
this man has in some way an intuitive sense of the tension of owner versus manager in the challenges and the realities of life. But evidently, what these individuals to whom James writes the is to marginalize the owner, push him off to the side in their take on reality so that they can substitute self for God. But then the issues of time break in and the issues of wealth then become affected. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. And then thirdly, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, he goes on to say, evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. And then this Jewish Christian who listens into this exposition and knows that James presumes a thorough understanding of the Old Testament knows that from Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, God had said that the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And so we begin to ask ourselves some tough questions, don't we? The questions that people would have to ask when they pondered the Sermon on the Mount teaching For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Am I substituting myself for God, seeking to be owner of time? Am I substituting self for God, seeking to be owner of wealth? Because we see wealth management principles unfolding before us now, and we begin to ask, Do I have a proper perspective on the desires of my heart? Am I able to operate on the basis of denial for the sake of recognizing the owner's responsibility and lordship over my life? For as Douglas Suthal Freeman put it in his brilliant volume on General Robert E. Lee, after the Civil War had ended, Lee visited once again Northern Virginia, perhaps on one of his final visits. And a young mother brought her baby to him to be blessed, and he took the infant in his arms, and he looked at the child, paused, then looked at her, and slowly said, quote, Teach him. He must deny himself. Unquote. From the lips of a believer who's processing the issues of time as it relates to eternity, the temporal as it relates to the eternal. And all these things begin to unfold naturally before us as we consider the whole matter of owner versus manager. And what is truly purposeful in what we have? Wasn't it World War II? Eddie Rickenbacker, 
America's most famous aviator during World War I. He's appointed special consultant to the Secretary of War, Henry Stinson. And during one tour in World War II, Rickenbacker and his seven companions are forced to make a landing in the Pacific. And there they experience 24 terrifying days drifting in a lifeboat, so the biographer tells us, until they were rescued by a Navy plane. After this recovery from the ordeal, Rickenbacker said, quote, Let the moment come when nothing is left but life. And you will find that you do not hesitate over the fate of material possessions. Quote. Unquote. Or as Bob Perks would hear a Jewish man say, I wish you enough. And God's grace breaks in and reminds us that on the third day, The riches of eternity are evidenced by a a resurrected Savior. And Paul would validate that in his argument in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich using this picture as it relates to the matters of salvation which leads us to the second significant danger now that James wants to draw out for us here. This time it's found in verse 4. Note secondly the danger not only of hoarding wealth needlessly, but pursuing wealth wrongfully. Now he uses a visual word to express a verbal exclamation. Behold. This is a highly visual, highly agrarian, highly agricultural climate he's speaking in. So now they begin to look around and they consider the landscape. Behold, as should you and as should I. Take this whole world view into approach, but understand the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's the owner, we're the managers, and then begin to grapple with the injustices of life. He draws out something that maybe was in the Jerusalem Post. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. He's focused now upon, in this case, those that had assumed that they were the owners of their businesses, which you kept back by fraud, he says to them. He says something here that is very powerful and moving, I think, in the time period in which you and I live in. There are two significant cries found in verse 4 that relate to this whole matter of wealth pursued wrongfully at the expense producing an injustice towards others. Two cries. The first, the wages of the laborers crying out against you. Do you see it in verse 4? Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. These wages are crying out against you. This is what I'll call the horizontal cry. But he doesn't stop there. A second cry And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord hosts. This is the vertical cry. 
In other words, James now horizontally and vertically has given us the sum total of worldview thinking here. And for the Jewish Christian in particular, his mind is moving a thousand miles per hour as he goes back to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13 where God had given his people his code of ethics chapter. It's brilliant. It's the informing theology of the entire book of James, Leviticus chapter 19. And there in Leviticus 19, verse 13, he speaks to these landowners as if they were the owners, when in reality God owns the land of Israel, even to this day. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning, and they know James is now connecting the dots. And so we start connecting the dots, and we realize that in the quality of our relationships, in our view of others, God is the owner, we are to be managers, and this whole matter of wealth management as it relates to time management all has to be placed under the lordship of Christ, like Matthew Henry did. Matthew Henry. A lot of us appreciate his devotional commentaries. His biographer tells us that one day Henry, on the Lord's Day night, went into London to speak on behalf of one of his friends who was away, another pastor. And now I'm using the older English because that's how it was used. He was met on his return by four men who robbed of about 10 or 11 shillings. And instead, however, of indulging in useless regrets, he entered in his diary the following remarks first. What reason I have to be thankful to God, I who have traveled so much to London and yet have never been robbed before? Second, what a deal of evil, the love of money, the root of it is, that four men should venture their lives and souls for about a half a crown apiece. See the power of Satan in here and the children of disobedience? Four, looking at the relationship of time to wealth. See the vanity of worldly wealth, how soon we may be stripped of it. How loose, therefore, we should sit with it as we await the day of our Lord. God has a firm grip because he is the owner. We maintain a loose grip, you see, because we are the managers. Or as Major Pension put it, after having left $300,000 in money, jewelry, and securities in a box on the Titanic and lived to tell the tale, quote, the money seemed a mockery to go after and try to take with me at that time. He later said, instead, I chose to pick up three oranges to take with me. Now, when we begin to consider this, what we have to do is to understand that the word value is rooted in the word evaluation. We've got to be able to understand what it is that God values. This world knows the price tag of everything and the value of nothing, Tozer put it. 
But what God does as the owner of all things is that he establishes value. Value on time. Value on eternity. Value on wealth for us to manage because he himself owns. And now then, I have to live a life of integrity as a biblical manager under the eye of the one who is the true owner and looking out over that which he himself has rightful claims on. So you and I do the same. When last night, once again, I prepared my heart for uh, the final moments of leading and teaching throughout today, tonight, and wrote my tithe check. What I did simply asking God, now use this, for you see, you're the owner. I'm the manager. And the tithe is just simply another declaration to you of your ownership. And I give to you as a statement of my management. And so now, Pam and I enter into that aspect of preliminary worship. And we look at this under the light of the owner who takes control of past, present, and future and establishes value in all aspects of our lives for us to evaluate in the light of his word. Now, when you and I begin to work this way, think this way, approach this way, all the things of life, it brings new perspective then upon this owner-manager tension in this fallen world, which will have tremendous bearing even in these days leading up to the presidential election as to the way in which matters of wealth, time, human worth are all coming together. Where do we draw an understanding of true value? And do we have right principles on who is owner and who is called, you see, to be manager? And that seems to be what's lacking here as he looks at this, believe it or not, religious secularists or secularized religionists, however you want to put it, who have substituted self for God, assumed ownership instead of embraced management, and as a result, find themselves in this one anxious moment after another, which is the case for so many people who try to assume ownership over life. And then when life breaks in and death breaks in and wealth breaks down and there is anxiety after anxiety compounded, it's because they never took first things first and put first one first as to who has rightful claims, you see. We take into account the dangers of hoarding, stockpiling, amassing wealth needlessly, pursuing wealth wrongfully. And now, this third danger, the danger of spending wealth self-indulgently. Verse 5. Still focused upon these religious secularists, secular religions, however you want to call them, you have lived on the earth in luxury. The Greek word here carries with the idea you got soft. In this hard world, you've, you've lived softly. And not invested in God, but indulgent with self. Self-indulgence. So continuing to use the Old Testament imagery that Jesus himself would use regarding pertaining to sacrifices and celebrations, he then adds, you have fattened your hearts, you see, in a day of slaughter. 
And such a person can't distinguish in this day and age between need and want, temporal and eternal, self and others, and needs, needs God to break in. Judas needed that, didn't he? It's a fascinating thing that he positioned himself to be the one who would handle the money for the 12 disciples. And six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, chapter 12. And in verse 2, they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now there's Judas having to deal firsthand with resurrection power as he plots Christ's death. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house is filled with fragrance of perfume. But Judas, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, And why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Thirty pieces of silver later. He has to wrestle with that question and address this in a God-honoring way. Chuck Swindoll. I have a close friend in the pastorate who traveled across the country for a week of meetings. Only problem was his baggage didn't make it. And as I recall, the bags were on to Berlin. He really needed a couple of suits. So he went down to the local thrift store and was pleased to find a row of suits. And when he told the guy, I'd like to get a couple of suits, the salesman smiled and said, good, we've got several, but you need to know they came from the local mortuary. They've all been cleaned and pressed, but they've been used on dead people. Not a thing wrong with them. I just didn't want that to bother you. My friend said, no, it's fine. It's okay. So he hurriedly tried some on, bought a couple of about 25 bucks a piece. Great deal. When he got back to his room, Chuck Swindoll writes, he began to get dressed for the evening's meetings, and as he put one on, to surprise, there were no pockets. Both sides were all sewed up. Though surprised, he thought, but of course. Dead people don't carry stuff with them when they depart. The suits looked as if they had pockets, but they were just flaps on the coat. And my friend told me later, I spent all week trying to stick my hands in my pockets. Wound up having to hang my keys on my belt. A reminder of the tension, he added, between the temporal, the eternal, and as I might add, between the owner and the manager. And so now what you and I are processing and thinking through are these dangers that we see lurking, not only in the culture in general, but also can invade our own relationship with God in the false substitution of self for God in the realm of ownership. But there is still one more danger, isn't there? There is a verse 6. Man, is he hard. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Fourthly, 
Note the danger of acquiring wealth inhumanely. You see the word condemned? It's a judicial word. It's as if we are now understanding that such individuals were in control of the court system of that day and age. And so they've condemned, and therefore the result of the condemnation is the murdering. And you say, well, Gary, how does that relate to today? Have you seen the Planned Parenthood videos? Are you bringing a Christian perspective, a worldview to what's unfolding? As an individual is noting what the, what the price ought to be for a particular body part, and does so, it seems so callously, Where are the courts? Where's the attorney general? Who addresses such matters? Does it take the pastors to do it? But then again, the issue is, who establishes value? When humanity assumes the right to determine value, it cannot distinguish between price and value. But when God has established himself as owner, he views you and me as being made in the image of God. And now, the lordship of Jesus Christ is such, validated by three days later being raised from the dead, that the Christian worldview looks at the whole cultural phenomenon unfolding in front of our very eyes. And now we see verse 6 in perspective. And now we've got a better handle on the fact that the one who is the owner is the one who establishes value, and he will be the one who ultimately evaluates. We look at this. We see the downward spiral of culture with a bit of religiosity inoculated into the system. And then ponder what Dr. Helmut Tilika once described. There was a child in our congregation. This is from Germany. Raising a, a cry because he had shoved his hand into the opening of a very expensive Chinese vase and couldn't pull it out. The parents and the neighbors tugged with might the child's arm. The child kept crying loud all the while. Finally, there was nothing left to do but to break the vase. Expensive, beautiful, hand down from generations. And then as the heap of sharks lay, shards lay there, it became clear why the child had been stuck. His little fist grasped a penny, which he had spied in the bottom of the vase, and which he, in his childish ignorance, would not let go could not distinguish as to what was of true value. People, when we embrace a Christian worldview, taking into account these four significant dangers that are lurking in the times in which we live, 
if we bring rightful sense of ownership that that is God's domain and a rightful sense of management that is our responsibility into the perspective of life itself, the result is we can have impact upon this culture for God's glory, realizing that three days later, Jesus validated his work on that cross by being raised from the dead. And so this teacher holds up the $10 bill. Gets the people thinking. What is the true value of that? Who establishes true value for that? And then the students and the parents read aloud. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. But God gave Jesus. And as God gave Jesus, Jesus, as Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 would inform us, Jesus did not hold on. He let go. He emptied himself. Not of his divinity, but of his right to just simply utilize his divinity. And as a result, raised from the dead, you and I have the rightful understanding. God is owner. We are managers. And this is for God's glory alone. Let's stand together. So, Father, the newscasts, week by week, day by day, force us to think critically, to think discerningly, to act effectively, to address the issues of the hour to bring the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the one who has complete spiritual equality with the Father, to bring him into the forefront of all that's needed in this culture, allowing for the Lordship of Jesus Christ to establish the true value that is to be found in a relationship with you through him. We're to have this mind which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human nature, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray now that we will not seek glory, but give it to you, the owner of all, who sent his son to die for our sins. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.